The guy that I think is a go-to if there is one here in Hawaii would be John Pizel because of John John, and so and he's a great guy, a great shaper. He does a great job. Creators and Innovators, presented by Visla, is a podcast where we seek to distill the character traits, motivations, and the daily rituals of creatives in hopes of developing a blueprint for how to innovate in one's own life. Last week's guest was Pat Rossin. Um, when I was the quote-unquote John Pizel, it was more kind of like, like 1979, 1980. I had a really strong Hawaiian team, largely because of locomotion. And um, when Mark Richards won, he did his, his little stint. Um, I ended up making him a board. Somebody had referred him to me to make him, of all things, a quad, because I was into quads in 1983. And so 1984, I made that board for Mark that ended up being a game changer for him, because he was a twin guy, and he was really good at making his own boards. He didn't know anything about thrusters, or he said he didn't, and he was riding single pins. So we made that one board. He was blown away. He loved it, you know, figured some stuff out. And then I get the call, or at that time we used fax machines. I got a fax. Would I be willing to make him a couple boards? And of course. Um, MR kind of got them all looking and thinking, like, who is this guy? Because I had all these really good, the Tony Moniz's and the Bobby Owens's and the John Doms. They were all guys that were getting a lot of publicity, and they were great guys to work with. They're all, all the thing that I love about the team riders that I look for are people that actually know what they want. And Michael and Derek Ho were as picky as they were. They helped me so much. We figured out so many different things. Search for Creators and Innovators presented by Visla in whatever podcast app you use or find it on surfsplendorpodcast.com. Welcome back to the show. I hope that you've had a wonderful Christmas. I have quite the gift for you with today's episode. This is a conversation that I had with surfboard shaper and just all-round iconic surf personality, bon vivant, Maurice Cole. Maurice's life and career has been very well documented as it's developed and then in more recently with various reflections and magazine articles and books. I'll give you a quote. Cole's manic energy, hair-trigger temper, outlandish generosity, insomniac work regime, and insatiable thirst for wild times are all legendary. It's an exhausting work just contemplating his life's journey. End quote. That was by surf writer Tim Baker in 2002. This is from Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing, which, by the way, is well worth the $3 a month subscription. If you don't already subscribe, you should definitely do that. But he said, quote, part Aboriginal, Cole was born in 1954 in the state of Victoria in southeastern Australia. He began surfing at 13 and won the 1973 Victoria State title. In 1974, he was arrested for possession of hash oil, and in 1976, he was convicted and he served over two years in prison, with part of the time spent in maximum security. 
Released in February 1978, Cole returned home and won the state title the following year. All the while, simultaneously, Cole had been building surfboards, and he would become one of the country's most successful board builders and really one of the world's most renowned, especially during the 90s when Tom Kern won his third world title riding Cole's boards, and then when the duo developed their reverse V design feature, which soon became the standard for short boards. Cole went on to build boards for other world champs, Barton Lynch, Kelly Slater, Tom Carroll, Mark Ocalupo, and then a lot of other notable standouts like Taj Burrow, Brendan Margeson, Kalani Robb, and he's always been on the cutting edge of big wave board design, be it with paddle and guns or kind of high performance tow boards, working with the likes of Noah Johnson and Ross Clark Jones. The reason why I mentioned that Maurice's life and career have been well documented is because that was not my objective with this interview. I did not want to just rehash the same old details with Maurice that everybody's talked about in the past. If you want to learn more about Maurice's history, give Matt Warshaw the three bucks a month, join the Encyclopedia of Surfing, read the bio, click all the hyperlinks, you can find it all there. This conversation, however, took place at a very raw time in Maurice's life, and we had a conversation the day prior to recording this episode, and I mentioned um, to Cole, as he kind of revealed what he was going through, I mentioned to him that that would make for far more interesting discussion on the podcast than, you know, rehashing the story of him and Current stumbling upon the reverse V. So Maurice said that he was up for it. And uh, he brought his A-game. He went really deep. And the conversation really affected me. It certainly made me feel more connected to Maurice, but it also made me reflect on the people in my life, what they may be quietly going through. It reminded me of the importance of kind words, positivity, and living by example. So I really, um, I'm really excited to share this episode. The first hour of the conversation is somewhat more about board building, even though there's a bit of kind of human interest woven in. The second hour, however, is a bit more raw and personal. So that's just a fair warning for anyone listening with children within earshot. And then one quick order of business before Maurice and I get into it. This network of podcasts is listener supported with an assist from brands like Spy, Need Essentials, and Visla. Some listeners have recurring $5 monthly donations set up. Some people have supported us through a one-time donation. And so just as a thank you, we've given away four surfboards this year in raffles to those donors. This month, we're going to give away our fifth. Mike Rowe is the shaper of hooked surfboards on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and he's the featured shaper on episode 246 of Surf Splendor. He's kindly donating a custom surfboard this month for one lucky person who has made a donation in the month of December. He'll build it for you to your specs. You have until the first minute of 2009 to participate in this giveaway. You can do it on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. There's a PayPal button. It's super easy. I'll randomly select the name of one donor and then put you in contact with Mike and he'll build you a custom surfboard for free. You will only be responsible for shipping. Thank you, Mike Rowe. And thank you to everybody who has supported this podcast endeavor. It has made this Maurice Cole episode possible. Also, thank you to the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center for providing studio space for Maurice and I to record this episode. 
you'll hear people coming and going in the background. They're just busy bees winding down their Joe Quigg exhibit, which closes on January 6th. Shack.org is their website. That's S-H-A-C-C.org for Surfing Heritage and Culture Center. And thank you again to Shack. Without further ado, my name is David Scales. This is Surf Splendor. And here is my conversation with the great Maurice Cole. Firstly, is it Maurice or Morris? Depending on which country you're in, uh, I've always been known as Maurice in Hawaii. The Hawaiians first called me that. Obviously, when I moved to France, it was Maurice. Half the people here know me as Maurice, and then there's some people call me Morris. So You don't have a preference, and you don't get offended either way. I do not get offended. Good. I get called a lot worse things than my <laughs> real name. Promise you. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, I just wanted to set the record straight. Um, what's the best bottle of wine you've ever received with a board order? Uh, I had a Margot this year that was given to me by some friends from uh, from Medoc. They brought me five bottles of wine, and uh, I had an incredible meal. There's a friend of mine, Colin Sato, who is just an incredible chef, and he's a wine expert wine expert with Paul Naray and his wife and uh, we had a dinner just in August and it blew their minds how good the bottle of red was and I didn't realize it was that good wow. until the wine experts all went wow and then Colin brought a bottle of wine to the next meal that was maybe nearly as good and it was $1,286 a bottle Wow! and this bottle I think was I don't even know, but people in France give me bottles of wine that I find out later that yeah. are just pure velvet. It's so better to not know the cost. You it's know? better to if I knew the cost, I probably wouldn't drink it. Yeah. Do you want exactly. to buy a bottle of wine? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's only a thousand US. That's so a lot of shape jobs. <laughs> was it um, Chateau Margot proper, or was it just yeah. from the region of Margot? No, it was Chateau Margot. Do you know what vintage? Uh, it was a. 96 I think awesome awesome just yeah. a little bit of age on it uh, just a little bit but yeah. it was as smooth you know I'm I don't really know wines that well I've never bothered um, but I can tell you there's the ones you can't drink the ones that are drinkable then there's really nice really nice reds that are just smooth that you know I always have yeah. cheese and wine and like yeah. a French cheese and a beautiful little piece of baguette and and then there's those wines that are just velvet, pure velvet, you know. I'd say spending that much time in France, you don't really need to know that much. There's great wine. There's great, like, everyday, drinkable, accessible wine available it's readily. It's so you know? cheap, you know. What you'll pay here for a $30, $40 yeah. bottle of wine, you can probably get for $10, $10 yeah. in France. But one of the things over there is the cheese, you know, oh, yeah. and uh, the last few years I've found the best cheeses are with the unpasteurized milk. Yeah. They are something else, so they can't actually export them. 
Right. So, yeah. So it's just it's one of those things, you know. It's and just the the combination of a velvety wine with a beautiful, you know. I really like the sheep's cheese or a camembert or mm, yeah. 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 The I'm same thing goes with the wine in terms of exporting. There's a ton of great wine that they just don't export. You know. Oh, they and don't. He, yeah, it's even, pre-booked. All the all the major families right. in France, from the major wineries will actually have pre-booked maybe 10 cases of wine a year and yeah. they get offered, do you want your 10 cases this year? That's it. So, you know, I've, I've, I've experienced wines and Armagnacs and that are 50, 60 years old. I've actually drunk an, an 1898 Armagnac, which is one of them, it's a cognac, yeah. but it's from the region of Armagnac. And you hardly see Armagnac around cognacs like the commercial version. Right. But I've had Armagnacs. The 1926 and 1927 Armagnac is a beautiful year. But that's a Mickey Dory, Mickey Dora story. Is it? Yeah. Tell me. We got time. I know. Okay, we got time. Well, Mickey and I were really good friends. He came to France in the early 80s when I was there too. And he'd been there before. And he used to come up to Hossegore in his van and uh, we'd surf together and uh, there was a really good understanding between us. That we, we were just surfers. And Mickey, Mickey, I made boards for him. He was one of the only guys that would ever paddle out with me on the... On the there was one specific day at the canoe where they have the, the, the WSL contest this right. year. There was one day, there was a right hand outside and I spent half an hour looking at it with some French guys going, man, we can get out there. And there was this eight to 10 foot, like big back door. There was this just big, perfect right hander. And I've gone, we've got to get out there. So I, I worked away as the tide came in to get through the rip, do two duck dives and I could get out there. No one else would come out, but I had to, had to have a good, had, had to try. Yeah. So I went out there and I can remember my first wave just pulled into this thing, got spat out about 50 metres down the line. And as I flicked out and I was paddling out, I was going, man, how good was that? And I looked through the next peak and there was it was like a Mavericks thing looking through the right, through the yeah. left. And here's this guy on his knees paddling out. It was Mickey. No and so Mickey and I were, you know, like just surfers. He used to come around every Sunday night for dinner and my wife would meet him at the door. And Nicholas, how are you? Oh, good, thanks, Anne. Have you eaten dinner? Oh, don't, don't trouble yourself. And Oh, we've made some for you. This was every winter, like for month on end, there was just this little ritual that my wife and Nicholas would go through. The ultimate gentleman, like if you was speak he? to my wife. It's the she. He was the ultimate gen gentleman, and he used to come around and watch the Sunday night movie because it was in English. Okay. On the, in those days. So, yeah, yeah. So I had these friends that ran um, ran uh, ran a uh, <laughs> model agencies in Paris, and they were really good tennis players. They thought, and uh, so they came down one time, and uh, yeah. George from American Models, and they used to play up in the Vitus Gerolitis Guema Villas Centre in Paris, and they thought they were pretty good. So they said, do you want a game of tennis? And I said, I can't really play tennis, but I was a really, I could run balls down. I'm one of those maddening tennis players, and I'll hit it 50 yards in the air, and it lands on the back line. It's just, just horrible to play with me, because I just get it, and I could get it over. So as we walked out, I said, look, this is my friend Mickey. 
Oh, good dimension. They sort of went, are you okay? Look, he was probably 50 then, oh. you know? Yeah. So, um, you want to play for beers? And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll play for beers. They smashed a 6-1. Yeah? And uh, and then I was sort of blown away. Mickey had shuffled around. He was missing this. He was missing that. And yeah, anyhow, so we lost 6-1. And then they were high-fiving and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was sort of going, oh, well, it was a bit of fun. Anyhow. And all of a sudden, Mickey goes, hey, you want another set? You want to play for dinner? Okay. And they went, oh, come on, you know, you must be pretty tired. And they were sort of having a go at his age and he looked like he was pretty slow. So, yeah, we'll play for dinner. You, you, and whoever it is gets to pick the place, okay? So we smashed them 6-1. Mickey's second serve was harder than his first. His backhand passing shot, he hit that corner just nine times out of ten. We absolute. I hardly had to play. If the ball went near him, he could hit a passing shot. He could. He, it was unbelievable. <laughs> so yeah, let's go to dinner. And he said, "Oh, I know this restaurant in Majesk, which is about twenty minutes from Hossegor, but it's a two-star Michelin restaurant." Okay. Now the bill was six and a half thousand dollars for oh four my of us. Gosh. Now what it was. Uh, the food was pretty expensive. The food was $1,000. But we went through the wine list. We went through the Armagnac list. And these guys, I mean, they had credit cards. And they were just, you just order what you want. You know, they had the company credit cards, right. which they used to, you know, I guess more than that. And to this day, I still tell the story. When I, when I, on the way out, we were pretty drunk and I put my arm around George and I said, look this up. You just got Mickey Dorad. What it was was the wines that we had. This is this is in the eighties. So yeah, yeah. the wines and and what we had were just that pure velvet. We, and Mickey knew exactly what he was doing. Sure. Yeah. That's is. amazing. Yeah. There's a an importer in Northern California. His name's Kermit Lynch, and he's brought back a ton of French wine for the last thirty or forty years, and like a lot of iconic French properties. He's responsible for making popular in America, but he's written a couple of books and he tells stories like that from being back in the 70s, going into these small towns, opening up the wine list and they have like Chateau Ychem from the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And it's on the list for inexpensive, you know, because before they opened up that export market, everything was just reasonable. Yeah. So I read that stuff and I'm like, dude, if I had a time machine, I would go back and drink <laughs> Ikem, you know, in France when you could afford to drink it. Yeah, no, so. it, it is. It's, uh, and it's still there, you know, and that's yeah. why uh, these guys that come, there's two guys, friends that come down and order boards every year and they're from the Madoc oh, region, yeah, region. And the wines that they bring me, when people come in and look at them and they just go, are you kidding me? How did you get those? Yeah. And they just come down, order two boards every year. They've been friends Perfect. since childhood. And, yeah, so. That's, I was thinking Australia is kind of in that phase right now where a lot of the properties are young. It's still developing its reputation and all that sort of stuff. You could probably find smoke and values, I would think. You can get the good values, but they're relatively high. You know, I mean. Expensive, you mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. more expensive than France, you know. Yeah, and yeah. The quality yeah. you get in France is just. You can't beat it. Yeah. Wines you've never heard of that yeah. people will bring you a bottle and you'll go. So normally, 
when people found out that I like to drink wine, red wine, years ago, everybody used to bring a bottle. And then it was like, I can beat that bottle. So right. you'd order a board, and I had this saying, if you, how magic do you want your surfboard? How magic a bottle of red can you bring? There you go. <laughs> I want to implement that with the podcast. Everybody who shows up exactly. has to bring a bottle. Exactly. Well, yeah, I would have brought some. I've actually well, got three bottles still sitting in, in my shaping room in France, you know, unless Tom Parrish drank them. Oh, is he a big Tom, drinker? Tom, if you're out there, oh, he loves his red. Yeah. Dude, he was episode number three, I think, of yeah. the podcast yeah. five years ago. Wow. Yeah. He was one of the originals. Um, I'll tell you what, next time we record with Chaz... We'll bring some booze. Oh, yeah. We've done it at my house, but I don't like bringing booze into the Surfrider Foundation or Shack, but we've recorded at my place before or Chaz's. Is that, will Chaz get up and crack me one or something if I say something wrong? I get a bit worried about it. (laughs) I hear he's rather a violent character, depending on what subject. (laughs) I think you might be able to handle yourself. I think don't bring up his family. Oh, I've worked that up. I've got that same thing. Yeah. Did you did you hear that episode with him? Oh, and are you kidding? Oh, okay. Of course I did. Dude, I was surprised that you even listened to podcasts. Well, I don't listen to a lot, but it's ones that really interest me. And to be quite honest, you know, I'm a bit of fossil tech. It took me a while. People, I, I didn't even know what a podcast was for a few years. Yeah, you know, of course. How do you get on a podcast and realize I've got Spotify and I've yeah. got all sorts of things? So I'm listening to more and more, but I should be listening to them in the shaping room, but I, I, I'm a music addict in the shaping oh, room. Oh, are you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. like big sounds. Like my factory in Australia, I've got a 350-watt sound system that just... I'm lucky that there's no neighbors. I'm wow. out on a farm and... Anyhow, so I love, I've always shaped a music and it puts me in a mood and then I'll go back and I can listen to music from the 90s and 80s, even the 60s, 70s that put me back, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a time machine for me. Music's phenomenal for that. Yeah, and it is. So I'll play a lot of old stuff and then if all of a sudden I'm grinding and I just all of a sudden want to go into dance mode, uh, right. you know, I'll put on house music, I'm a... I've been in the full rave scene in That's the 80s before everyone else. Really? End of the 80s and the 90s. So my genre of music goes from everything from techno to hard house to house music to to blues to rock and roll, you know, all the yeah. way back, anything. I So it's interesting... You're early. You might say that you were late to kind of getting on podcasts, but I'd say you're still early. I think the vast majority of the population either doesn't really know what it is or doesn't know how to access it. And how old are you? 64? 64. 64, yeah. right? I feel like you've always kind of been on the cutting edge, not only in regard to that, but like you're super active in the comment section, certainly on Beach Grid. You're, in terms of the boards that you're designing, you've always been on the cutting edge, you yeah. still are. Um, it's interesting that even as you've aged, you've remained kind of on that, you never yeah, slowed well, down. It's like when I see doctors and stuff and the way I even, even when I had cancer and you know, like it was pretty, you know, they in Australia they've given me two to three years to live. Really? Yeah, they, I've I've had cancer twice, and right. those times they just gave me a couple of years. And I remember sitting in front of the doctor, and he sort of said, "Well, look, we've got great news. It, it hasn't spread to your pelvic nodes." 
and I just couldn't help myself and smile and go, what a great name for a band. Hey, anyone out there, the Pelvic Nodes, think about it. And he just looked at me and he said, do you realise, Mr. Cole, that you're in serious trouble? This is cancer. And I sort of said, yeah, yeah. And then he sort of went, well, look, we're going to have to do pretty heavy. We've got some new hormones. We've got some new treatments. I think we can nail this. And he said, but, you know, one of the side effects is, you know, you're probably going to end up with, you know, boobs and, you know, like you're going to put on some weight and stuff. And I just smiled at him and went, boobs? Yeah, well, maybe I could have a shave, shave and new career at Hooters, you know. And he just, like, the doctors couldn't, couldn't shift into that. And so there's always that self-depreciating humour and... Uh, right. You know, and just just being able to, the, like doctors, my body's just been so beaten up over the years. I'm starting to really suffer from every, all, so many injuries, you know. So yeah. the problem is I've got the mind of a 15-year-old and the body of a 90-year-old. Yeah. I'm still trying to find that balance. <laughs> well, um, in that piece Derek Riley wrote about you on in the Surfer's Journal, I feel like when you referenced cancer you said that you were go- going through stress or something at the time and that's yep. kind of when the cancer showed up yeah um how much did i read into that or do you really feel like there was a correlation oh, no, no, between no. stress there, and it, the it cancer? Was absolutely it was basically i started base which was billboards and surfing equipment i'm not going to go it, it was really traumatic for me um we had a great idea got finance a group of shapers uh base and uh, I knew that there was something wrong in the company and it was the financial people that were running it so I called in some experts and we tried to save the company but some of the shapers voted against me and I was virtually kicked out of the company and I lost everything and even my name and I had to spend I've about a hundred thousand dollars to get my name back with the best lawyers in Australia and that six-month period I was devastated that my friends these shapers and the, the person that I'd put in charge of the company which ran the company into the ground and it just it went bankrupt years later but the fact that they locked me out uh, really treated me probably as bad as bad as anyone could have been treated to the point I was using the Tony Troiani, who was the top top three commercial lawyers in Australia, Mallison, Stevenson, Jark. So it was a boutique, really, really, really good. They were one of the best best legal companies in Australia. To the point where Tony, at the end of it, gave me a twenty thousand dollar discount because he'd never seen anybody treated like that. Really, but it took me six months in a very, very, very dark place. You know, very, very dark to where I was fighting to get my name back. And uh, five years later, when I was finally diagnosed with cancer, two doctors, the doctors in Australia and the doctors in, in, in the US, uh, actually said, did you have something about four or five years ago, a lot of stress? And I just went, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So I have no doubt that it was the stress and, and anger and just just about hate you know mm. I, I was uh, yeah they're lucky they're alive anyhow so <laughs> that's how bad it got it was it was 
it devastated. I don't think I've ever really recovered from that. I was I just going to really ask trust, you. I don't really trust a lot of people, and you know, it really took a lot out of me. It really took a lot out of me. Um, what were the lessons learned from that experience? <sighs> I'm sure you did have some sort of a role in it. Is there anything you would learn? Oh yeah, forward? no, I set the whole thing up. It was my idea was to create a company with a group of shapers. Um, where we could become vertical and that we'd develop our own machines, we'd develop our own foam, we'd develop our own retail spaces. The idea was, was, was great. Like the people that I brought in to do, to do an audit on the company were like the best in Australia. There was no one better. I was able to network and find a couple of people, like the, one of the best accountants, and the guy who headed it up, Mark Blanchard, I mean, he, he was one of the heaviest hitters in the world. And they, they did it virtually for nothing because they felt sorry for the company, for the investors. And, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, it, it, the lessons learnt. Uh, I've just stayed small by myself ever since. Uh, I just want to develop a small custom model I would never go back into business with anyone ever again you know my faith and trust was was pretty pretty banged up yeah yeah it's a shame it's a shame because it should have worked well it's a shame also just to have your um, you know faith and trust and those kind of really important things like if you can live with those things you can live freely and make creative decisions and really make progress well that was the so whole idea you know, was to have an infrastructure that would support us to go out there and just and shape and design and and the whole idea was to counteract the yeah. the, 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 the upright i saw the china thing coming yeah yeah you know and i just went if we go vertical and we can deliver and get our pricing down well we can we can we we'll, we'll be able to take china on well, so let's talk about that. Um, <laughs> you do talk about the surf industry apocalypse. You're saying base was an effort to kind of mitigate against that eventual disaster. What is the surf industry apocalypse, first of all? Well, the surf industry apocalypse virtually started with the companies. You know, the big, the big companies, the Quicksilvers and the Billabongs and, you know, all the other big companies where they virtually rode on the backs of what we were doing in the 70s and 80s which was a rebel sport but they went beyond that and they got growth they went public so it was there hasn't been one surf company successful on the stock exchange anywhere everyone has failed and you've got to ask why and that's because they alienated the core surfers and the next generation and if you alienate for example generation x or the millenniums or something like that it means that your company has a very short life because it'll last the age of how long you know surfers from 40 to 50 might buy older brands but the minute that the mums and dads that don't surf are wearing brand surf brands young people aren't going to follow it you know right. and that's what's happened and so they built these companies into billions of dollars they went out and they branded everything and they got royalties coming in i mean some of the stupid things that i've seen and i'm just going you're just killing yourself you're just killing yourself you know and it's happened and that's what we've seen in the last five years is the decline of the surf brands 
and radically. I mean, you know, they were to where, you know, I think it's one man that owns Billabong and Quicksilver now, and there's all the companies are up for sale, and you know, there's no new companies that can come up and, and hit those hundred million dollar marks. You know, there's some really good companies coming up, but the the era of the really big, the really big turnover companies that's that's finished now i mean surfing will will never will never be able to do that again so then you come to where all the stuff was made you know it was made in third, third world countries and so there was more profit so many years ago all of a sudden we could see the surfboard that was the last bastion where ah they'll never you know they'll never penetrate they'll never penetrate the market that what what happened the asian boards you know people started going to asia and i did i did it myself with after base uh, my friend was uh, francois he was the ceo of rip curl and uh, so i got a deal where i was going to build the boards in china i did all the boards but the quality of the shape wasn't very good and it started varying big time so you know, I just went, I don't want to do this anymore. It just doesn't feel right. But at that time, you know, I'll be honest, I was desperate. I had no money. I'd lost everything I had with base. Like I was down to a dollar sort of thing and start again, which in itself was rather traumatic for myself and, and the family, and more so probably for the family. And they saw, they saw me basically spiral down into a, nearly a black depression. You know, so I had a few things. I ended up with psychiatrists, uh, ended up being diagnosed with pretty severe chronic depression. Um, anyhow, so you go through all of that, but you've got to, the, the good thing about it is when you're that low and every time in my life that I've hit rock bottom, I bounce back. So my life has been a series of really highs and really lows. And, you know, anyhow, so... That's what happened with the Asian thing. I thought, oh, this will be easy money, this will be good money, you know, and it was, you know. It, it sort of saved me at that time and, and sort of got my head back above water. But it just didn't feel right because I've always had a really good culture in the factories. I've always owned my, my own factories. I've never used glass shops. Uh, I love having a team of guys. I love the the synergy between all the guys. There'll be, you know, there's dramas, there's people blowing up. They're all eccentric lunatics, I think. <laughs> you have to be to be work in smelly, dirty, dusty places. But there's a super passion, you know, and it's harnessing the passion of all these eccentrics. And I used to really enjoy that. And I've made lifelong friends from glasses, sanders, ding fixers, you know, like-minded people. So the China thing, all of a sudden it sort of hit me, you know, like, you know, we've got this amazing surfboard building culture around the world, you know, and there's a lot of egos and there's a lot, but it was, it's raw, it was, it was, it still is. I mean, some of the characters out there are, are just amazing. That's what I love about California. Some of the people I work with here in the glass shops and that, the eccentricity, the passion, the love, just coming back to the China thing, so we didn't really, we knew it was coming, but not to the degree of how how it's turned out, yeah. Nothing, I mean, the way that the modern world works, none of us could have anticipated the degree to which things have either 
expanded so quickly with either whether it's technology and Instagram or whatever like that who would have known that all of surfing would exist on Instagram of all places yeah. you know like nobody could have predicted these things nobody could have predicted the radical wealth that we're seeing nowadays associated with a lot of these advancements yep but like you said your life has been highs and lows i feel like there's optimism in the lows and you're talking about this surf industry apocalypse which i think is a real threat but there's real potential in the depths of the apocalypse when everything goes wrong to start anew phoenix well, it's, it's rise from the opportunity ashes, you if know? you can be critical of something and you know I, as you know on the forums and that i've been pretty critical of companies out of asia uh, specifically firewire um, and, and slated designs you know they're just pretty cheap nasty boards being sold at a premium and they're on consignment all around the world i mean there's been a bit of crap out there talking about oh we only do it in the usa no you, it, they're in australia they're in france i know firsthand because i know I know the owners of the shops mm -hmm. and the product has been getting it's cheaper and cheaper I'm seeing them break I'm seeing them seeing all sorts of things that, that just don't add up you know some of the materials I, I won't go into too much detail but I can assure you that in the in all the the repair shops in the world nearly four in five boards are from from Asia Mm. and people are paying top dollar for them and you go it's sort of a marketing exercise and probably in one sense a pretty smart business practice of doing consignment but it's really really hurt the industry it's really hurt the, the local glass shops because a lot of the brands cannot afford to do consignment and match it even though a lot of them do and to me it's the customers losing at the end of the day because those those surfboards are not sustainable full stop a sustainable surfboard is one that lasts a long time and you know that's what we've been working towards year i've always had really thick stringers uh, in my boards going back to going back to the 90s when Pat Rawson used to say, man, you're using so much wood in those boards, you're just taking out the rainforests, you know, like. <laughs> so, 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 you know, it's been a, I've always believed, because I've never used to shape that much and I really wanted the boards to last. So I, I would have a really strong stringer. So I would say, you know, that my boards have got a very strong spine and all of this EPS, uh, EPS stringless stuff, it's just crap. It's, it's called spineless surfboards. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Um, why not just let the market decide what the market wants? You know, like your, your experience in manufacturing in Asia was that they couldn't manufacture the quality that was up to your standard, so that's why you pulled back. But if these other companies are able to and it's up to their standard of quality which might not be yeah. your standard of quality and the consumer is the one who gets to make the decision on the retail shelf whether yeah. they want your board or that board what's the problem with that well no the problem well there's the, i won't deal with shops anymore there's a couple of shops real water sports because they really support the local shapers and patagonia it's pretty obvious the rest i do direct that's my business model now. The, the wholesale price, I'd rather make one retail custom board and deal with a customer 
mm-hmm. but it means that I've got a very small business model. And part of that is is because getting caught up in, and I've been caught up in it before, is trying to do big big sales to the shops, yeah? Takes so much time and effort, shops don't pay, you know, we come back to the apocalypse of the industry, we all know that the, the companies are struggling for sales they're all doing sale or return on clothing which means the shops now they've got they're full of boards on consignment or six right. months credit so we can't compete with that anymore okay so i think now in the last few years the custom market has become really strong again and it's mm-hmm. booming right now people want tints people want boards that last longer so i think the market is reacting now and all it was is a bit of short-term pain where yeah. the companies have been delivering less than average surfboards that break, that crease, that they've just got really hardly any strength in them. But it's all the marketing. It's the marketing from from, uh, from Firewire, from Kelly, and uh, you know some of the other big companies. But I've seen three years ago here, you know, the surfboard sales in the USA dropped by 50 to 60 percent in three months you know and i was working for lost then and i know channel islands were sort of up both those companies lost and channel islands were probably doing two to three hundred boards a week i know lost was up to 300 boards a week so all of a sudden they went down to a hundred you know and they've had to reinvent themselves and you know i give total credit to matt and CI now have actually done a really good job. They've pulled out of Asia. They're re- trying to rebrand themselves as made in the USA. They do. They just did a collaboration with the Campbell brothers. They're doing one with Tyler Warren. So I think what we're seeing now, we're seeing the market evolving away from the cheap, the cheaper, the cheaper, expensive fashion fashion surfboard because the customers are already speaking. I'm getting quite a few people who were saying, oh, I broke my TimberTech, I split it, I, you know, and I thought I was buying an eco board, you know, and the whole, so, an eco board, you know, what is it, you know, it's gotta be sustainable, you know, if you, I used a simple, as a simple uh, little uh, formula. If you were going to travel around the world for three years and could have one surfboard, what would you make it out of? And I've had even the people that are EPS guys go, oh, yeah, you'd have to have a PU blank, you'd have a nice thick stringer, so if you broke it somewhere, or you wouldn't break it, the chances of breaking it. And then we'd use a bio-epoxy because it's a little bit better than, it's a little bit less toxic than uh, the polyesters and just normal epoxies. Right. So when you think about it is that the whole sustainable thing, that's what's really coming to people's thoughts now. The whole idea of what are we doing with all this plastic in the ocean? I mean, what are we doing to the planet right now? You know, and you know, then then we get onto the WSL. They're trying to paint themselves as you know, like doing things for the environment and all of this. And we had a meeting years ago about trying to get the WSL to adopt a policy where. The, the surfboards have got to be more sustainable, you know, even if they were glassed in epoxy or something like that. But when you look at what's happening right now, pro surfers use a 60-year-old technology and they're still going through 100 boards. It's still a disposable, a disposable mentality. So how the hell can you try and put yourself forward as some sort of, oh, yeah, we're working for the environment? 
to me that's one of the it's a really dark part of surfing all the polyester boards i still do them trying to make a living but i try and convince people to at least get a bio epoxy i uh, i use, try to make boards that don't break as well yeah well i use apple core stringers which are the best stringers in the world i don't like stringless surfboards i don't like putting carbon all over the boards uh, i don't think there's a need for it uh, i know i've been through it all i was making eps epoxy surfboards in 1986 I used to hotwire themselves. I worked with the first non-toxic, supposedly non-toxic resins, which is a bit of a fallacy because the actual catalyst is really toxic no matter what you what you do. So I built all of those. Tom Curran won two contests in 1991, trials to world title. He won uh, Biarritz in Portugal on an EPS epoxy. So, you know, I know what I'm talking about when I do that. I've sure. gone through the whole composite thing. I've looked at what people use carbon for and carbon patches on the tail, which creates another a part of the board that's stiff, so they crease in front of the fins. It's just just, just a myth, a myth. There's a lot of, lot of fallacies. There's enormous amount it's of crazy. fallacies out there, and a Even lot just, of the big companies are still pushing them, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they have marketing, or they have business interests that they're trying to protect and support and yeah well you know it's really simple why eps is coming out of out of uh, asia it's so cheap yeah you know those blanks are five dollar yeah crappy blanks you know right. and then they put a little bit of this and a little bit of that and go you know this is what's happening you know yeah. and, and it's just not it's just not not true you know it's just it's bullshit yeah. well so where are you making boards currently we're in california recording this yeah I, well i'm working with timmy patterson which is, you know, he is the heart and soul of the industry. You know, he's, he's, you know, I called him, what did I call him? Young master, because, you know, just about everyone's younger than me. <laughs> and, you know, it's not just the making of the surfboards. It's the designing, it's the talking, it's the history, it's the history with his father, how many people he helps. I help a lot of people in my life too, you know, that some people that are struggling, kids that are struggling. And then I've just started, I've just got a board off Varial, uh, Varial glass job. I didn't use the Varial foam. I met those guys the other day. And that's the future, is infusion technology. It's a little bit more expensive, like the glass jobs are $150 more expensive. I've got a board in the car. You can squeeze the bottom. It's just a single six-ounce bottom. It's bulletproof. Really? Yeah, it's it's insane. You know, I mean, it's what Hydroflex should have been. But I went up and met the engineer the other day. They're low key. They don't have big egos. They're 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 technically way ahead. I've got another guy, Ron, here that I work with, and he is the best hand laminator of epoxy I've ever seen. So he can do really nice tints. He can do super light glass jobs. You know, so that, that that to me is, you know, I work towards a sustainable surfboard. Yeah. I'd love to be able to use bio-epoxies on all of them, but it is expensive. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a blue-collar shaper. Um, I'm a blue-collar kind of guy. So there's a part of me that feels for people that if I go and only build Ferraris, you know, I struggle with, you know, that only the rich people can buy yeah. my boards. Or they, they have to save up for so long they can only have one board. Yeah. So I still do a little bit of polyester, but, you know, I use really thick stringers. I use five-ply, six-ply stringers to try and hold the boards together. Explain the varial infusion glass job. So you can use P 
PU foam. PU. And is it the same fiberglass that you would use in a normal lamination? No, they've got all different stuff. I mean, is it all proprietary then? Yeah, they, they, they've they've got a lot of stuff. I mean, I couldn't really. They <clears throat> they let me look at it. They let me look at their factory from a distance. Gotcha. Okay. I know because I've done vacuum bagging. I did vacuum bagging in the mid '80s when I used to do uh, slalom boards, windsurfing slalom boards, yep. EPS. So I know how strong you can get a surfboard. We can virtually make uh, what I think. I think we could nearly make an unbreakable surfboard. If you put a triple stringer with a varial, like for a gun, it's, yeah, and you're still going to have the flex because one of the things is you can use less glass and a heavier blank, um, which means you, you, you still have the... I don't like talking about flex. It's the torsion in the surfboard. It's torsion, anyhow. And uh, so I've just started building boards for Ross Clark Jones and all the tow boards and some boards that are triple stringer, and I use a Negra which is like a poor man's Kevlar. So it's got no flex in it at all. So the flex is coming from the stringers. So I just had Garrett McNamara in, uh, in, down at Bells and we had a bit of a fun time and I showed him how all the boards looked like they were really glassed heavy, but they still had a really, really nice, you know, uh, we'll call it flex, but when it's in the water, it's the torsion we're looking for. So. Yeah, it's the same feel you're used to. Yeah, so it's the same feel without it being too stiff, you know, yeah. So that that makes sense for certain types of surfing and certain types of waves. What about for the guys on the CT, like the super high-performance guys? Is there any viable, sustainable option so that they're not going through 100 boards a year? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah? simple. Because they're... Because they're usually just super lightweight boards, just glass and you know, four and a four on the deck. I think the boards are a touch heavier now. Um, and they might do a four with a four patch or something like that. But we all know, but it's expensive. That if you if you say got German the the, the infusion technology, I mean those boards would be way stronger and also by using a uh, a thicker stringer, like when I look at the stringers on all of these guys' boards, it just blows me out. It's still pretty Neanderthal, um, the building of the pros' boards, even though in when they're here in California and they've got to surf Huntington or Trestles if it's really small, they might go to an EPS epoxy board. Right. You know, so there's a little bit of that. But, you know, I don't know how many pros out there would be surfing a PU epoxy. You know, they don't really understand, and I don't think a lot of the... The younger shapers understand that, you know. I, I mean, I know of some some surfers who are getting well in excess of a hundred five elevens a year. Yeah, that's crazy. And and creasing and breaking half of them. Yeah, you know, at least. See, I would think though that their decisions are mainly based on performance. So they're not worried about the waste or the sustainability. They just want the highest performance. And if the highest performance, I don't know, material breaks down, they're not worried about that. You know, so I'm wondering, my question to you is, if you implement some of these more sustainable methods you're talking about, will they sacrifice performance? No, you I think, think so. it'll increase. I think it'll really? increase the performance. So one of the, one of the biggest problems is, is the whole idea of a magic surfboard, right. you know? And we've been discussing this a lot lately. I've been in talks with Patagonia. I've just been with Eric Arakawa. And, uh, we talk about, Matt and Timmy, we talk about magic boards and trying to hold a magic board together. So what is a magic board? 
what happens if you get the best board of your life and it's in that disposable it's going to in that right. disposable that disposable formula right and i see that everywhere where guys are trying to you know like they break their favorite board and their backups are pretty average and i sort of went back we had a, a soiree here at Shack. That's where we are right now doing this. And I had did it with Tom. And, you know, I made a lot of magic boards for Tom. We had a couple of breakthroughs with the reverse V, guns, short boards, everything. And when someone asked a question, I'd never thought of it before. And they said, well, how many boards did you ever get? And he went, probably 20. And I went, yeah, 20 boards. So I would have said 10 of those were magic. 10 out of 20. Because... You make one board, you bring it back, and you fine-tune it, and you listen to the rider, and you go, if you're good enough, you'll be able to work out that, oh, that could be the nose rock, or it's, you know, there's too much tail lift or not enough. And that's part of knowing how a surfboard works. And then they, uh, someone asked, how many boards did you break in that time, Tom? And he thought, and he said, none. Because I use thick stringers. When you look at the original boards, but Tom was such a good surfer. And, you know, I've got another great example of John John Florence. When I knew Pizel before he was famous and uh, uh, with John John before John John was on tour. And he couldn't make him many boards. So when John John was on tour for the first few years, he had a board that got him from, uh, I think it was in Bali, the Karamas. And he surfed it to pipe, one board. Yeah? Unbelievable. One board all the way. And I remember he creased it in the, an early round of pipe. And I had a look at it. And it was beaten up. It was yellow. One magic board. And it hung in there. And I was going, man, imagine if it had a thicker stringer and it had, a, had a, uh, an infusion technology glass job. It wouldn't look like that. Yeah. Yeah? And then the next year he did exactly the same. You know, he had the board that he surfed and came second to, to Geordie at Trestles. He took that board and he won at eight to 10 foot Hossegore and those big outside tubes. He took the board to Portugal and surfed it at pipe. You know, and to me, the science of making a custom surfboard seems to be severely diminished by a lot of people and uh, by a lot of shapers that make a lot of boards and, you know, I think if you go back and have a look at my comments on the forum, I'm not quite sure whether they're good enough shapers to actually scientifically work through boards or they're just plain fucking lazy and it's just easy to make 10, 20 boards and give someone 10 to 20 boards. Interesting. So what happens is it means design-wise that the feedback from your team riders you're not really having to do it. You're just making a whole bunch of surfboards, ho hoping that one works really well. Yeah. And, and then average boards. A lot of guys on tour are not, are not uh, surfing magic surfboards. But if you have a look at this, have a look at the top five surfers in the world right now. Okay? You've got Gabriel Medina. He's got his shaper that works exclusively for him. And he's worked with him for 10 years. No board problems. Ever seen Gabe, Gabe's with a surfboard problem? Never. Toledo. Ever seen him with a really bad board problem? No. He's the same deal. He's got one shaper. That shaper gives him that and works with him. Yeah? Yeah. And then you can go to Italo. Timmy. Timmy. Then go to John John. Paisal. Paisal. 
and dial him in. Jordy, who's actually never fully lived up to his potential, has always been riding a bunch of different boards. Well, I had a talk with Richard Marsh earlier in the year, and we sort of came up with that he's probably got the worst boards on tour. Yeah. You know, and it shows, you know, that he's never really worked with exactly one shaper to develop a whole range of boards for him, yeah. you know, and specific to his way of surfing. If Al Merrick had a still been yeah. at Channel Islands, right. it wouldn't it'd be how many it would be how many world titles he's won. Right. I don't have any problem in saying that. Now, so when you look at the top five surfers today, yeah. they've got the they've got the Ferraris, they've got the magic Ferraris. But everyone below them, Julian too, Julian's got really good boards now, but it's only been the last few years because I reckon Parco up until then was the number one surfer for JS and the same with DH, it was Mick. Yeah. And then then you've sort of... Interesting. You, yeah. I so. mean, the, the stats work. You're, you're right. If you look at the numbers, it validates what you're saying. What I think is kind of interesting within that point is it takes a long time to develop that relationship with the shaper to refine the process. And I try to tell that to listeners all the time. It's like, go get a custom, write it, give them feedback, get another custom, get another one. Five years down the road, you'll be dialing into something that feels really magic yeah. and elevates your craft. But it takes that long, you know? It does if you're just working with a customer who gets a board every now and then. But I've always... Everybody that I've ever worked with, and when you when I go back to the '90s, you know, when I worked with Tom, then it was Margot, then it was Trent Munro, and then my my stable of surfers became huge. And it was I used to think it was ego a little bit, like looking back, but it was the challenge of making surfboards for Barton, making surfboards for. Oki making surfboards for all these different surfers and in the end they all had di completely different surfboards you know what I mean right. and and the challenge of doing that even with Taj getting the magic boards for Taj to get him to number two in the world it took a little bit of while but that's 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 what I love most yeah, that's exactly. what I, just soon as you get a magic surfboard and I'm going okay how do I better it there's no thought of going yes Right. Uh, yeah. There's no kidding? point in just replicating oh. the same thing to end up on the retail rack to the masses. Yeah. The fun is in the... The, fun, the yeah. real fun for me and the passion and the, and the designing is, is going... I, I often look forward and go, wow, what a surfboard's going to look in five years. You know, and I've got deep concaves. I work, work with tow boards. I work with... You know, that's been a really big part of my life, working yeah. with Ross. And we've got waves at home that, you know would be nearly as big as Jaws, but I think the wave's better. Wow. You know, and it breaks for, you can do five turns on wow. this thing. And so we're testing boards. I'm testing hull shapes and fins at probably around 60, 60 mile an hour. Like Kyleni the other day. Yeah. I've been watching Ross do that for 10 years. Wow. Exactly what Kai did the other day was just mind boggling to me. Totally. And it just justifies everything I've talked about is, is going, you test that stuff at those speeds and you could see if there was one thing wrong with that board and everyone go, oh, it looks easy, you know, he's just towing in. And I go, hey, 
Are you kidding me? If you can't paddle those waves, what happens when you have a wipeout? Those guys are going to have to survive a wipeout that no human has ever survived. Yeah, full speed on a massive Full wave. speed. Yeah. Like if he's going, like Kalama was saying, 50 to 60 yeah. mile an hour and he catches a front edge, I'm going to tell you what's happened. He's going to cartwheel down the face. If he can't get his foot strap out of the foot, foot strap quick enough, he'll probably snap his ankle. Yep. And then he's going to land at full speed, 60 mile an hour on like hitting cement. Totally. Could break his neck, dislocate his shoulder. And then let suffer off. the wipeout. Oh no, then he's going to cartwheel, yep. land flat on his back and get sucked back up over the yep. falls. I've had it happen to me twice. <laughs> <laughs> Not so, at those speeds though, but okay, so horrifying. I've used uh, a quote of yours over the years talking about I don't know where it was, and maybe it wasn't even you who originally said it, but it was something to the effect of, like, a board is kind of at its best. It performs at that kind of magic sweet spot right before it delaminates. You know, once you've kind of got foot wells in it and you've figured it out, it's, not to use the word flex again, but it has a different flex pattern than it did when it was brand new and crispy. You've kind of gotten to... To know it, this is yeah. this, is, this is, that, is, is that your theory? This, yeah, okay. this, is, this is a Tom Curran story. Okay, okay. I made a six nine for Tom. That Tom went on to win Santa Cruz. He won Bells. Uh, he surfed at Burley. Uh, it was an incredible magic board. It was the first one I ever made him. And uh, when he brought it back from Australia, yeah, brought it back from Australia, and he caved in the tail a little bit. And I went, "Wow, do you want me to fix it?" And Tom's a man of very few words. And all of a sudden, I went and watched him go, no, no, don't touch it, don't touch it. And I asked him, why? And he sort of spaced out and looked at the heavens and he went, the lower center of gravity. And it took me a little while to think about that the closer you are to your fins, you know, because boards had thick tails then, you know, the closer you are to your fins, the quicker the, the quicker the reaction between when you push and the energy goes straight into the into the surfboard well all we've done is and I do a lot of that on my boards I actually thin the tail out for the last the last probably foot or two and there's a couple of reasons it's the torsion but it's also the that your foot's flatter it fits in there and feels feels better than a rounded deck and the other thing is the energy that when soon as you push in any way or form on your back foot, which is really where your power comes from, it's closer to the fins, it is a lower centre of gravity. So there's all these things over the years that have happened. It's just like, yeah, so when, when boards have been crushed in the tail, I mean, we've heard over the years and I've seen people get rubber mallets and crush the tail. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, what's funny is now he's writing skimboards. Yeah. So that conversation that you have oh. is continuing yeah. in his evolution. Yeah. No, no, no. He, you know, and, and he's all about feel. You know, yeah. he's, if you try and ask him why and how it works, you know, I'm not sure he really knows. But right. that was my biggest challenge was, first of all, was to interpret what he was telling me. And yeah. it was like hand gestures and, oh, it's up the front, you know. And I actually learned because. I'd worked a lot with, you know, when you talk about eccentricities, I'd worked with Wayne Lynch early, early in the, and he was, you know, he was, Wayne was, he was eccentric, he had all sorts of theories, great theories and stuff, but it sort of prepared me 
for Tom in a certain way. You mm. know, we've got a book that we've done uh, with Nick Carroll that's just a collector's book at the moment. Yeah. And it tells that whole story. And uh, it's stuff that we learnt, that I learnt so many years ago, but it's still relative to today. And, um, you know, I, I love the whole idea where a board's flat under your back foot. If you've got a roll under your back foot, when I started first doing these really deep concave boards, uh, I had trouble controlling it at high speed. So I actually went back to the shop. It was actually a day at Bell's. I made this wave at so high a speed and I came flying in and I knew Derek Hind was up the top watching me. And I, I actually thought, watch, I'm gonna do a turn here. And I was going way too fast and I couldn't control and I landed flat on my face. And I came out of the water and I should have been happy with the wave, but my ego got the better of me and I went straight back to the factory. I grabbed a grinder and I ground down the stringer and I made it flat. So it had fit, it felt like a foot strap under my back foot. And the difference in that board, I've still got that board at home. Like people used to say, man, then what happened? All of a sudden now you can control the turns. So you could do really high speed turns, but it felt like a foot strap. Because hmm. at that next level of speed, you, you couldn't have a rounded deck. You just couldn't have it. Right. Yeah. So. My my question with that um, delamination, the day before delamination is when the board's at its best. My thought up until now was that you were referring to all the materials being worn in, like that stringer actually being less rigid than it originally was when you first write, started writing the board. But are you saying it's actually just the footwells that make kind of the biggest difference? I think so, yeah. I'm okay. pretty sure that what happened, what happens before a board delaminates, if it's gone too deep, you know, like then it delaminates and then the board's just about dead, you know? Right. But one of the things that happens with PU, especially if, you, if it's flexing so much, it actually breaks down. Right. The actual PU foam breaks All down of the over the time. Do. So, so that's why I've always liked uh, a thicker stringer. So all the, the pressure and the force goes into the stringer. So the board's flexing a little bit less. So yeah, yeah. I'm very sus. I've spoken to a, a guy called Scott Graham, and he, uh, he built the Oracle. Oh uh, yeah. Oh yeah. He's a he's a surfer, and uh, I've had a lot of big talks to him about it. And he believes that the front two thirds of the board could be dead stiff, and the back third of the board just needs to torsion off, which you'd call call flex. Well, there's the pendo flex right there. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. San Diego um, shaper Steve Pendarvis puts flex in that tail. That whole patch is actually like you could flex it with your hand. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of, I don't know, the front of the board I don't think is that stiff, though. Yeah. I think it's just a traditional construction. Well, the, the, that whole theory goes back to when 1978, um, there was a, a group of guys came out from New Zealand. They brought the Tinkler Tails. They called them Tinkler Tails. Don't know this. You know, yeah. Well, what it was, they developed a system where we used to use two inches of tail lift then in the single fins and you could do it at an inch and a half and they said the flex it was these i gotta get I, maybe we can talk about that next time and i could show you a photo yeah one of the things i learned about that it wasn't the flex all of a sudden you had three controls on the top with springs and you could control the flex but what i did in the end i virtually took out the the side ones and had it as stiff as i could in the middle 
and I could feel the board twisting yeah. the bells to the point where I could take off and faded bells and come straight back up and hit uh, where I came from and do a re-entry and then go back down. The problem was uh, the things would go that fast because now we've got less less tail lift, but when it torsioned off and I actually started looking and I could see it in the water, this tail, but guess what happened? Hmm. I broke every one of them doing a bottom turn. Every one of them. And that showed me back in 1978 that torsion was more, was just, that. that's what we're really, really doing rather than flex. Yeah. Uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit, do you feel like Bells Beach should still be on the CT tour? Yeah. You do? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me play devil's advocate then. Yeah, uh, go. It's soft. I mean, Winky, I would argue, we could have a yeah. we could have Winky on tour. But like when the event runs at Bells, if the waves aren't pumping, it's a lackluster event. It is, but it sows everywhere. Really. I mean, I've seen trestles with two waves of heat. I've seen, it depends if you want to be entertained and catch lots of waves. A lot of people don't like it simply because a lot of younger surfers don't like it because it's as hard as sunset right to 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 read there's such a big 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 area out there it was like a couple of years ago i took kayo out and i showed him the waves to catch okay and he ended up coming second there's a whole bunch of waves out there that go unridden i mean i'd very rarely ride bells i ride up the point of another and you can speak to all the guys on tour where i go up there i got really fast boards and you know i've had andy irons he pulled me up one day what is that shit where do you come from how do you do that i've had mick i've had the hop goods i've had so many different people will say you know ask peter king you know the one day i made a wave all the way and chloe dropped in on me i nearly ran chloe over he didn't even know he didn't think you were going to make it i know he well he yeah and i make this so there's a different there's a different thing there but what we don't see a lot is if you get bells at four to six foot west or a south swell so a lot of that time at that time of the year it's a southwest swell which is sort of our average swells it's a bit like a northwesterly at um at pipe we know the west southwest ones are the, are the killer ones we know that that's the best at sunset well there's two swell directions at bells one's a really south and one's a real west yep and uh so it we we can transition into the library. Oh yeah, because I am gonna need to. Yeah, you're gonna work. Yeah, we can do that. We're live. Go for it. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of a lot of negativity about bells, but I've seen years there. You know, like I've seen years when snapper was terrible, and I remember one year that uh, Mason Ho got a really good barrel at bells, which was better than any snapper because hmm. you know snapper will be if it's two to three foot and junky it just looks horrible to me everyone struggles there so any any event anywhere i've just been watching pipe it's terrible yeah you know but i mean they won't say it but everybody every surfer knows what they're out there surfing you wouldn't go out there probably and have a free surf it's that bad so but we all know what pipe can be right 
And you just got to go back to a few years ago when Kelly won one, Parco's won one, Mix won one. When it's when it's offshore and clean, the big thing is a lot of the time, if it's early bells in March and early April, we don't get the the sixteen second swells. And bells and winky are so different from sixteen seconds plus. Uh, at eighteen seconds, which is usually in winter time. I mean, it, you can get barrels at Bells. I've had pretty long ones. They're top barrels, but, you know, it's nearly a 200-metre ride, you know, and you're going for your life. And if yeah. you get hit out there, you'll get dragged underwater a long way, and it'll hold 10, 12 feet. I've never seen Bells too big. I've never seen really? Winky too big. Really? Yeah, never. You know, if it's clean and offshore, it yeah. breaks out to sea depending on the direction. Our worst swell directions are southwest swell. And that's what we get a lot at Easter, and that's what you'll see, you know, when you get the big fat burgers outside, and they've got to run in and you know do the reentries in the shore break and stuff like that. But every time they run in those conditions, I'm like, why is Bell still on tour? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, no. No. And, all right. Well, good. I'm sold. No. No. And what it is is, it's just you know, you'll see a couple of years. I mean, one of these years. I mean, they've had it at Winky Pop, and Winky Pop looks good and fun. That it's really difficult to ride. It shouldn't be held really? there when it's onshore. Okay. It needs to be offshore. But we're going to get it one year when it's eight to ten foot, and it'll freak people out. It'll right. freak the surfers out. No, it's very steep on the takeoff, and there's big barrels down the bottom. And if we get a twelve or fifteen foot swell, it'll be really interesting because no one will have boards. And it was mm. like that big year at Bell's that we had in 1981 that Simon first in, in, had yeah. the thruster, no one had boards. Yeah. No one had boards. And that was a, that was a really good direction swell because what you'll see is everyone plays safety and sits in the bowl. But if you go outside and sit further outside and people, people see me, I sit there on the stairs and just go, look at that one. And if you go back and have a look at some of the footage from when Parco and Mick and Kelly won some of those you know, six to eight foot offshore clean, have a look where they take off. The wave had already peeled for 50 mm. to 60 yards, 70 yards, maybe 100. Wow. But it's a really big risk to go up there. But right. I only surf up there, you know, right. and I've developed all these really deep concave boards like super, super fast. And you, that's that to me shows that people go, oh, yeah, he just knows it. I got better equipment. I got mm. faster equipment because that's what you need. And to me, that's part of the future of surfing. Do you want to go faster or slower? Faster always. Always. Okay. So I've worked out how we can get boards. Ross, I think, has been clocked at 86, mi- uh, 86 kilometers an hour on a wave doing a turn. What? And it wasn't unlike what Kai Lenny was doing the right. other day. Right. And we know, to me, we've got to make boards go faster. We've got to make boards turn better. So they can fit an extra manoeuvre in. And that's why, to me, at the moment, professional serving has just stagnated so much Mm. that everybody's just, you know, just doing the same same speed. You know, that's why they used to say Mick White Lightning because he went a little bit faster. Why isn't everybody doing that? Why aren't people trying to make faster boards and push the envelope? You know, and there's a bunch of reasons for that, you know, with how short... You know, you finish pipe and then two months later, you've virtually got to start. There's, there's no off period to really do testing. Right. So in itself, it's sort of, yeah, it makes it really hard for the shapers 
to actually come up with a new formula and test it because you don't have a six-month or a four-month period off. What the surfer does at the end of each season goes to his shaper and go, this is the best board I had. I need you to copy this for next year. So there's been very, very little uh, design-wise that's happened in the last 15 years, I would say. The same rock lines, because I've, I've got all, I measure them all, I see them all, you know, and to me it's, it's become pretty boring. And uh, so when all of a sudden you see Toledo going, oh man, he's so fast as a surfer. You can't go fast without a fast surfboard. It's like a car. Yeah. Doesn't matter how fast you can drive, you can only drive as fast as the car goes. Yep. And, and Toledo's boards are really fast, and so are Italo's. You don't just go fast because you've got to have the equipment yeah. under you that'll actually handle it and turn at those speeds. Right. So we're seeing that a little bit more. So I'm hoping that, you know, the shapers have to lift their act now to to really start experimenting more. But really the, the WSL system maybe this year I think snappers a little later. Mm. So there might be a three month period, but you know Even it, that that's not that much. It's not that much, you yeah. know. You look at Formula One, man. I mean, they're they're building new motors. They're doing everything three months before the end of the season. Then they'll go into testing in January, February, and they have to. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars there, and they will work towards faster cars that have better grip. And every year they do it. Yeah, you know, and they're constantly changing the rules, trying to slow them down. Right slow them down because they're scared of accidents at high speed now they've got those new halos i, I follow formula one yeah. it's just amazing sure enough they'll have the first race of the season and they might beat the record by point two. by the end of the season they're beating every record by a second right and surfing if you went back and and had a look at the speed of surfing it hasn't changed in 20 years now there's a few surfers that are surfing a little bit faster but when, 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 where does the design come from? Where, what is the next level? How long can we keep just, to me, making average surfboards and, you know, there's very few surfers on tour that have magic boards. So it has. It's become a little bit homogenised. It's become, dare I say it, a little bit mediocre, except for a handful of surfers at the top who are actually working with directly with the shapers and not just getting 10 or 20 boards thrown at them and see see if you can find a good board every time i hear a surfer say yeah i got really good boards they're really neutral which allows me to do so i, I cringe when i hear that mm. because a surfboard's like man it it should be taking you places on the wave and challenging your surfing to be faster and can you do a turn at that speed I mean, you know, when we did the reverse V, or back board was much faster, and it turned on a shorter radius, you know, and I just, I still look for that today, but anyhow, it's, that's my view. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from your article with Derek in the Surfer's Journal. You said this was in regard to after base collapsed. Yep. Ooh, yeah. You were saying... Um, you were responding to his inquiry about kind of your financial state, and you said, I have nothing. I've gotten, I've got a pretty good surfboard collection. I've made so much, but I've lost so much. That's why I'm here in France. I pick up five grand here, 10 grand there, pay a few debts. 
Uh, I have a 12-year-old car worth 500 bucks. I think I've I think I've still got my integrity. Do you feel like through that process of working with partners the process of even outsourcing at some point um, to Asia, do you feel like your integrity was ever compromised through any of those experiences? <sighs> Gee, that's a good question. It goes back to when, uh, okay, my integrity, yeah, I blew apart my integrity. I felt like it. All my life, I'd, I'd sort of lived in the shadow a little bit of Wayne Lynch and just um, in those early days I got to France and then I could become myself and the years in France in those years it was never about the money you know and it was never about the fame or glory or anything it was about just going surfing and barrel riding and you know like it took me years to work out how to get great boards for barrels you know, and then I got them, and then I got made bigger boards. And the challenge always, for me, the integrity of a shaper, I can shape a, a 4.6 to a, an 11.6 gun for jaws. And every one of those boards has been tested, and I know it's as good as any board on the market. So that was part of building the integrity as a shaper. But in, the, in amongst it all, as soon as Tom came along and the fame and the glory and the back slappers and you're the best, you're the best, and I did. I got to a point where all of a sudden I wanted to be the best shaper in the world. And for some reason, because everybody from Torquay had made money and I'd never made money, and then all of a sudden I went, yeah, I'm going to make millions. And it was type of a pollution to my integrity. And I actually went moved back to Margaret River. I had a giant big Japanese contract. I um, mean, this is documented too. And all of a sudden I got to the top. I was at the top. I was making more money than any other shaper on the planet. I was literally making a million dollars a year out of Japan alone, without Australia, without France, without Hawaii, without the mainland. And I got to the top and it was the most empty feeling I've ever had in my life. And I hit the wall. I had a nervous breakdown, um, which manifested in a horrible way. I won't go into that, but, you know, I had to do counselling. Uh, you know, I nearly killed someone. And, uh, and I went to a really dark space and I was working. You know, the price was I'd start work at two or three in the morning. I'd work seven days a week. I started surfing less. But, you know, guess what? I was able to travel business class, first class, you know, like to, to Europe. And so the ego was pumped and, you know, I had a lot of back slappers and stuff like that. And uh, so, you know, uh, there was a couple of incidents, a couple of really, really horrible incidents where I nearly suicided. I was actually on top of the world and I was going, I just, I had this incident happen I just was doing 120 mile an hour. I took the seatbelt off and just aimed up the tree. And uh, all of a sudden I was in the gravel. And then all of a sudden I had this flash in my mind of my kids trying to understand what happened. And it pulled me back. And uh, so long story short, uh, they tried to get me into counseling. It was gonna take two weeks and uh, to get in and the next day I had an incident where a guy tailgated me 
and I was just empty, angry, disillusioned, just overworked, too much coffee. It just life, just this is this is fucked. This is just like if this is what being at the top is like. It was a lonely, really empty place where I seemed to have alienated friends and family, even though on the exterior. I was still doing it, but there was just something. There was just this big black hole inside me. And then this guy tailgated me this day, and uh, I just slammed the brakes on, and he looked like he was going to get out of the car. I got out of the car with a machete. Luckily, he took off. Good. I went home. Uh, I was in tears. I collapsed on the floor. I couldn't even walk. And I was sort of yelling at my wife, call the police, call someone... I want to be arrested and the incredible thing was they got me in straight away to this Jenny Monson who I did two hours of counselling for nearly two years and she started unwinding everything from my childhood being adopted, being a dark kid in a, in a white community, uh, you know, like I suffered a lot of racism as a kid um, <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden all these things added up. You know, to to wear the, the the lust of being the best and richest in the world, it was just a false idol. <laughs> you get there, and it was so damn empty. So I had a lot, a lot of money then, too much money, and it it only took me three or four years to get rid of it. <laughs> you know, which, as my wife said, if we had to save ten percent, we probably could have retired. But yeah. Part of, so I come back to the integrity thing. Uh, I lost my integrity um, for who I was as a person, not just as a shaper and, and that. It, and I had to rebuild myself. And at that time, I was working with Taj and I had such a big team of guys, you know, everyone from Poto and Noah Johnson and Trent Munro and oh, the, the, the list goes on, Margot. And, you know, I had these amazing surfers, Ross Clark Jones and, you know, Barton and just, just amazing, amazing people around me. And it's those people that helped me just, just shape and surf, you know. And so the integrity thing is really important for me. Yeah. And I now, I suffer. I suffer from, I don't want to make money. I'm scared that I'll go back to being that horrible, empty person. I think there's a way to do both things. Oh, there is. I'm, yeah, it's, Not, co- it's cost me I don't me know a anybody who does it right the first time, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think there might be a way to do things. The, I'm curious, given everything that you've discussed and all the people that you've met over the years, you've had business partnerships with a lot of them. Um, who's important to you in this business? Who who do you count as friends at this point? I've got a lot of friends, and it's taken me quite a while, you know, because, you know, this, I, I haven't said this public yet, but it's probably going to have to come out. My wife's been with me for 47 years, and she's seen me just at the top. She's seen me in France. She, I thought she was my rock, and uh, she's separating from me, and it's just been devastating for me. But I understand, and I'm learning off people around me where I have had similar, like Timmy and I were talking about this morning, see it from her point of view, 
and uh, we, we're, we're going to be best friends. I don't know. I refuse to divorce or I refuse to give up. I have no interest in any other woman. Um, and it, it's a scary thing when you look forward and you go, wow, the one person that I thought would be with me all my life and that we'd grow old together and, you know, like... And all of this trauma, not trauma, this life that I've lived, the highs, the ups and downs, she's very anal. She just can't take it anymore, mm. you know. And I'm in a process now of talking to friends, Eric. You know, Eric Arakawa is an, an incredible friend and has been. You know, we met in France in 1981. Uh, you know, I've become a Christian. Uh, might not be a very good Christian, but damn, I'm trying really hard because it really makes a lot of sense, you know. And my wife's psychic can, you know, I, I know that I've been hard on her about that. And it's, it's the proof is there that I've seen so many supernatural things that she's done with people. So there's Eric and Timmy and Carlitos and friends in France, Francois. I mean, my, you know, and that's where I'm blessed. My group of friends, real friends, yeah, they often say that you can count your true friends on one hand. And I'm, I'm processing, processing this yesterday and the day before because I'm still going through phone calls with my wife and that. And it's just amazing that it's more than five. Mm. You know, Barton Lynch is an incredible friend. Ross Clark Jones is an incredible friend. Um, you know, I've got friends that, like, it might be a funny one, but Sonny and I, Garcia and I, we talk about depression we've become really close, you know, because we, we can talk honestly about how we feel inside and the empty and the and the depression and, and you know, and uh, that little voice on your shoulder, it's the devil or it's just that depression voice that just tells you you're a piece of shit, you're worth nothing, why don't you suicide, you know, and get it, you know, you've, you've hurt all these people. And sometimes you can't see out of that fog, that dark fog, and they're the days when you'll come across someone and that's what i've found you know i mean i'm running running I'm, i can't wait to get back to hawaii hawaii is like my second home i mean i get treated in a way with a respect that i get in, yeah in france too a little bit different but hawaii's always been a second home and you know it's like the money's family and you know i looked after tony as a kid you know, and we had a quick chat the other day and, you know, I'm going to look after Seth at Bells. And then Tony said, I'm coming, brah. I'm coming <laughs> to Bells. And I tell you, to get a Hawaiian to Bells, yeah. that's something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, so the friends, yeah, it's, I've got an amazing network of friends that sometimes, you know, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. You know? Right. And I'm still learning today. This is... A pretty you've got me at a pretty uh, fragile sort of radical part of my life but you know what it's where growth happens <sighs> failure is one of the best teachers you can have yeah and I've failed at a lot of things and the worst thing is I failed my wife yeah mm. what um, given that that depression was diagnosed so late in life <sighs> when you reflect back how do you think that you um, treated it throughout the previous 35 years 
the previous 30, apparently... Because you seem happy outwardly and enthusiastic outwardly. Oh, yeah. How no, did it manifest and how did you treat it? Well, anybody who knows me, <laughs> I was diagnosed as having depression probably when the bass thing happened. I had a really bad incident with my daughter where I blew up and just lost my shit and hurt her like... The, like just yeah and I had to go to a psychiatrist and he diagnosed me as having depression since jail so I had untreated depression for 35 years and uh, <coughs> let me just finish this yeah. and how it manifested itself you cornered me my anger and I would come at you and you know it was some of the things that I learned in jail was you know it was pretty horrible I learned to fight pretty good I learned to street fight so I was one of the better guys when I was younger you know and I could I could I could really really go I could kick I could use elbows virtually at the end of the 70s before we even heard of MMA but right. with my temper and if you backed me into a corner or you pushed me yeah I did a lot of damage to a lot of people and that's part of the depression thing. That's your self-esteem and not being... I mean, I, I, I remember I got out of jail once. Uh, not once, sorry. I got out of jail and uh, I was at a bar in Torquay. And I was just sitting there having a drink and this guy kept looking at me. And I said, what the fuck are you looking at? And he said, nothing. And I just fucking beat the fuck out of him. Don't you call me nothing. And people were freaking, going, what happened? And then I realised nothing was I, I, you know, he was just trying to, he was, he knew who I was and he was just innocently looking at me. And I remember that because that, that was a really low act, you know, because I knew how good I was then and I became a little bit of a street fighter and used to go down to the pub every Thursday and Friday night and drink and fight, you know, and it made me feel good and, you know, which is a, really really fucking horrible thing when I look back and you know when I still get pushed now um, I got to be really really careful and I understand I got to learn to talk my way out of it I'm getting older and you know I've only ever had been taken out once and uh, that was by, that was by a friend of my friends who was actually called me out in the pub one time and I couldn't land a hand on him he ended up becoming the middleweight kickboxing champion of Australia oh my God. and he was traveling around doing with street fighting just of all the good you know local local fighters Funny. Uh, he, he didn't really beat me up and I had to stop. Hey, wh what's going on here? And he said, hey, I'm a friend of Nick the Greeks. I just wanted to see how good you were. And I wasn't that good. Sure. Yeah, you know, but f for that time. So, yeah, that darkness, uh, the abuse, I get really angry. You know, I've got an acid tongue. And I'm aware of all those things now because it, it's cost me a lot. And, you know, I'm, I, it, I'm on this great new adventure every day now is an adventure you know trying to become friends with my wife uh, you know I, I don't have I gave her everything I had and I start again I start yeah. from zero right but you know there's the, I shape I love shaping I love the people I love creating you know I've got new designs deeper concaves all sorts of stuff with people who ride them they're faster they're carvier than any other board on the market but I haven't really put them out on the market. I've been very self-indulgent where I'll do a new model. 
and it goes insane. And then I just go and I let it go. And you know, my wife used to say, "Make some money off it." And I go, "Yeah, but I got this idea to, you know." And I just keep trying to be that creative, innovative. And you know, I've got enough designs in my head now to do something new, probably for the next three years if I don't have another thought. <laughs> oh. So. So yeah, so it's a, you know, I look at this whole next part of life and I'm trying to live it. It's easy to say it, but it's really important that, uh, that I've, got a, I've got a new big adventure happening mm-hmm. in life. Damn, I'll be 65 next year and I still want to tow and I get a little bit fitter. You know, I've been through the cancer. I've still got a bit of weight from all the, the cancer hormones and stuff like that. Yeah. What, what is it about Christianity that appeals to you? Um, it's really easy to follow. It's 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 the laws, it's the rules, you know. It's it's looking at a guy like Jesus, you know, and like Eric. He we've known each other for a long time, and what happened is I've nearly died. I've been in eighteen car accidents. Eighteen. Yeah. What? Uh, I've spent over a year in hospital. I've had cancer twice where they gave me two to three years to live. I've been under three waves without a breath uh, where Ross picked me up and uh, I was unconscious. You know, if Ross hadn't pulled me up, I was face down. I have been over the falls. I've just on 20 foot waves where I didn't tore my legs to pieces, couldn't walk for two months. I've had that many near death experiences that the last time that the Australians said, look, you're going to have to do chemo, but it's secondary cancer. Your chances are really minimal. I came back to I came back to California and to my doctor here. And I can, I can tell you this, that I actually was feeling that bad about, I don't know where, this, I don't know, I was lost. I, you know, I've been famous. I've had money. I've had no money. I've taken my family through that ride with me which you know is something I'm not really proud on but I like to think that it's been character building for everyone in my family but um, I actually went to the doctor uh, about 10 years ago eight years ago when I got the secondary cancer which is you know pretty hard to to beat the second time because the first time was a million to one shot you know they gave me no chance but mm. you know four and a half years of being a vegan special drugs cryo surgery i mean i did this really experimental thing and and i was just like i'll beat this thing you know i will i know i'll mr c i'm gonna kick your fucking ass you know and i went to war with it the second time was a bit tougher because they really gave not a lot of hope for me and uh, I went into before I went into this doctor's office I had a plan that if, if it was that bad I was going to disappear into the Rocky Mountains like a wolf like the alpha male I'd seen a program on wolves and I went in and I sat down and I talked to the doctor and the doctor looked at me when he came back with the tests and he smiled at me and he said they misdiagnosed where the tumour is and I went, well, what does that mean? He said, we'll na- we will nail this. Oh, my gosh. And I just, if you had a known, I went out of that building. I've never been so scared in all my life walking through the door because I had two options. It's going to be good. I'll go home. Something good will happen. If not, that no one had ever seen me again. And I had it all planned. 
I knew about CCTV cameras. I knew how I was going to disappear, you know, alpha male, because I didn't want to trouble my family or anything like that. That was sort of this really weird, weird mindset. So all of a sudden uh, I came out and I looked at the heavens and I just went, I surrender. What the fuck is going on here? I am dodging bullets like, you know, I've been dodging bullets all my life. And I just said, nothing makes sense anymore. Nothing makes sense to me, you know, like, and I looked at the heavens and I just went, I surrender. I fucking surrender. What the fuck? So um, two days later, I just happened to be in Hawaii and Eric never pushed anything on me. He said, uh, he said, uh, you know, uh, oh, yeah, like I'm coming to work early tomorrow. Um uh, Sean can bring you. And I said, no, I'll come in. I love working early. He said, no, i got a prayer meeting. And uh, I said, I'm in. And I remember Eric stopped and he went, what? And I said, I'm in. I'm in. I, everything else I've tried in my life hasn't worked. Nothing's made sense to there. And I've studied all the religions and, you know, the Buddhists have been everything, but nothing ever really made sense to me. So all of a sudden... I'm at a prayer meeting and then it was like opening this valve, like the things that were being said about me and how I felt and empty and without anything to, you know, the false, the false idols, the fame, the glory, the money. I've had it all and none of it meant anything. In fact, it was probably really, it wasn't good for my integrity. The integrity that I thought I had had constantly been challenged and what I thought integrity actually had nothing to do with money, fame, power, anything, anyhow. So so it was really funny. So I went through that and then, of course, I went to church on Sunday and uh, I looked up and on the wall it went, if you've blasphemed against God, there's no hope. And I nearly got up and walked. And I only found out last year that Eric was too scared to look at me because when he looked up, he went, he's going to walk out. And I hung in there, (laughs) okay? And I just went, oh, well. And then basically what it was, Tripp, who was giving the service, actually uh, got halfway through it, and it wasn't. That was the Jewish Jewish view. It wasn't Jesus' view. Jesus will forgive us for our sins. Okay, so... Anyhow, Jesus died for our sins. And it seems all so far out and anyhow, and I've just gone, you know, okay, okay, I'm getting it, I'm getting it. Oh, wow, because I have blasphemed like you have no idea. <laughs> you have. It's funny because I'd blame everything on God but didn't believe in God and I would just take, take him to town and for any Christian in the water was just, I was the devil, you know. I mean, it was heavy. And uh, anyhow, so just to show God's got a sense of humour, <laughs> we get we get getting through the sermon, and Trip goes all of a sudden. Well, I'll have to finish part two next week, and it's like fuck no, you can't. <laughs> and I had to go and meet him, and I had to, he tried to introduce, and he's an ex shaper. No, he's a shaper pastor. He said, "I know who you are," and I said, "Listen." <laughs> I t- I'm leaving on Tuesday. <laughs> Please, can you tell me part two? So that was the start. But before I left, Eric said, I know you well enough. You have to read all these books, the proof. So me being a reader and analysing, I went through all the, um, the proof of 
was Jesus real? Did he exist? Yeah, through, I think, 36,000 parchments in five languages. There's all this stuff I came across. There's all these books I read about uh, atheists who are going to, you know, prove... The, the, the case Jesus, for Christ. The case for Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all yeah, that's, you know, so there were all this stuff. And then, and then all of a sudden I realized, gee, this guy was real. It's the, it's the most documented person in history. But he only was around for three years, like literally preached for three years. So what did he say? So then I read the one-year Bible and I got the Old Testament and I'm analysing everything as I go. And then, of course, I'm going, well, is there a supernatural? My wife has done things that it's just mind-boggling that she can sit down with you and do a reading and then she'll ask spirit to come along and it might be your great-grandfather from that you knew, or sorry, your grandfather who's been dead for 20 years, and she'll describe him. And she's just got no ego, no nothing, That's the, and she'll describe him and tell a story. When you were six years old, you and your grandfather, or your father who's dead, you know, had this thing, and she'll repeat that conversation, and then she'll go on. Wow. And now that's not just the odd bit here and there. That happened... That happened over uh, over 30 years. And uh, so it's very simple for me. I have lived and seen firsthand supernatural forces, okay? So, of course, if there's supernatural force, it's pretty easy to believe there's a God, yeah? It's pretty easy to believe a God. And it's really easy for me now to understand Jesus, you know, and when people hear Jesus a lot, they oh no not a not another god botherer or a, you know like yeah. a, you know and I've, i haven't copped much I, I i i'm i'm prepared to talk about it but i'm not strong enough to to really go out and preach it but i have done it to a few people and uh you know a few people have been in need and i helped them and it, it saved a guy that you, I'll tell you after who his name is, I, unless I had his permission, but yeah, I stopped him from suiciding, you know, and that was here in California, you know, uh, and well, he went to God, and I'm just saying, did I really do that? Did God work? But, you know, anyhow, so... Your story's powerful, you know what I mean? So I think people, there's a lot of gravity with your yeah. recommendation or your testimonial or whatever. Yeah. Um, the question I have for you is, from that experience with Arakawa, when you had that, kind of epiphany it hasn't been all rainbows and roses in the subsequent years you admitted a, a really recent big hardship so how do you find reprieve in that or how do you reconcile kind of having a roadmap but life still not really abiding by it well it's a funny thing when you look at some of the negatives you go through that actually turn into positives and the way I reconcile it is it's God's plan. It'll make me stronger. I think it'll make my wife and I stronger. I know we will end up best friends somehow. Um, it's, it's really heartbreaking for me to see that she's just been diagnosed with PTSD living with me for that whole time and she still hasn't got treatment and she will and I just believe believe it's just part of life it's part of my journey the other side you've really got to be careful of is the enemy 
and the enemy being Satan, and we, we don't even dignify Satan, but the enemy, which a lot of people who have depression, it's that negative voice. It's that voice that's telling you, you know, go and get stoned, go and get drunk, you know, that'll, that'll stop the pain, you know, like um, there's just this dark darkness, and I've always known it's been there. I've always known there is a really dark side somewhere on this planet, and I have lived darkness. You know, I have lived darkness in jail. There was things I did when I got out of jail that were pretty, pretty dark. Um, you know, uh, I don't think I've ever really hurt anyone that really deserved it. You know, there are a couple of instances of miscommunication, but they're all sure. okay. But what it is, it's an incredible testing. It tests your faith. And it make, brings me back all the time, you know. It's sort of, I wake up in the middle of the night and say, I had a nightmare the other night about my wife where I just couldn't get to her. And it was like, it was like all of a sudden I, I've got to wake up and try and snap out of it. And I'll just say a simple prayer. And it's just, oh, it's just simple things like the, the simplicity of a prayer and just asking, asking, asking for help. And, you know, I'm a sinner. I accept Jesus Christ as my saviour, you know. And all of a sudden, it's the blackness goes away. Now, a lot of people could see that as just, oh, yeah, that's just your mind playing tricks at it. But not when I couple it up with the supernatural and the experiences I've been through. And I honestly believe, and, you know, Eric really believes too. Timmy believes that, you know, I'm just starting a journey, you know. And they've seen some of the people that I've helped and I forget, I just take that as second nature, that I help people, you know, people that are, you know, literally trying to kill themselves, you know, and I've got, I'd hate to think, it's been four or five people that have actually been at that point and I've actually been able to come in, give them a hug and tell them the story and it's brought them good, hmm. you know, it's it's... It's, it's a really powerful thing. Yeah. It's a really, really powerful thing. And now that I'm connected, and I mean, I was brought up <laughs> in a really strict Anglican church. My foster mother was one of the, uh, she was the highest woman in the Anglican church worldwide. She was the first woman on the synod. I, you ready? I was a Sunday school teacher, <laughs> boy scout, choir boy, altar boy until I was 16. And I was surfing. And then one day they said, you're old enough now to make your decision. Yeah, and I said, "What does that mean?" And they said, "Well, you, you can, yeah." And and I got on the phone, and I never went into a church. I quit everything, and I didn't go to a church until I went to Eric about wow. six or seven, eight years ago. Wow! So you know what I mean. So yeah. I had that sort of upbringing, but it never, it never resonated with me. So yeah, you just yeah. do it by rote because you're yeah. Best at it. But it's it, yeah. Let me ask you this: um, you've faced fear and even confronted death multiple times what are you currently afraid of at this point you know this is i just told my son this um i had no fear until i had kids i was a fucking lunatic anybody who knew me in those days i would go out in any surf you know with wayne i mean we surf breaks that if we wiped out we were dead there was no one to get us. There was no leg ropes. And it was an adrenaline rush. There was no fear. There was no fear of dying. Fuck, I was nearly trying to die. 
one day I had my daughter, which I'm adopted, so she was my first blood relative, my first blood, you know. And one day I had a thought, what if something, somebody tried to hurt her? And I can remember that moment. The fear was just phenomenal. What would I do <laughs> if someone touched my daughter or, and, or something happened to my daughter? And that was the first, first fear I really can remember in my life at the age of 28 in France. Up until then, life was just a, a blast. Anybody right. that knew me in those times, you know, I drove like a maniac. I had two speeds, stop and flat out, yeah. you know. And uh, I used to drive and had accidents. And <laughs> just, yeah, anyhow, so. Do you have any phenomenal fear now at this age with this life experience? You know, it's, it's just something that, that it's a false fear and it's just come to me now that not have being alone, uh, like, like that whole story of the wolf. You know, the alpha male wolf, one day he just wakes up and he knows he can't protect his family anymore. And he goes off by himself and dies. And that was a real fear of, of being, uh, having any negative consequence to my family. So it was a delusion. Right. So right now, my fear, I guess the only fear I would have, which is a really stupid fear, is falling out and not being a Christian. Because that's the thing that's just really puts me on track. It's the one thing that keeps me centred, um, you know, and a lot of goods come out of it. I'm a, I'm a lot better person. My daughter has saw me a few years ago and she said it. I can't believe the change in you, what's really? happened. And she said, I said, it's just... I'm a lot mellower. I, you know, uh, I don't react as radical as as I used to. If you corner me, I'd talk my way out of it. I'd probably even let you hit me. But since the things happened with my wife, it's been going on for nearly two years, a year, really intense, and uh, that's been a real struggle. It's been a real darkness, you know. But I'm putting it into context that it's God's plan, and we will get back together. And I'm, I believe, I just have to have a goal in front of me that that just seems real and it's just why would god try and separate my wife and i so maybe the enemy's a little bit involved there you know there's always a bigger picture though yeah that yeah is unforeseen you know yeah yeah but that security that you're talking about of just having a father or a heavenly father a figure heavenly father. who has I'm adopted. A, I have no mother yeah. and father. So know? that that security of having somebody who is all knowing and has a, a roadmap is a uh, comforting. What an amazing roadmap for life. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Like the more you go into it, it's just like if you ever want to know what's right and wrong, the fact that you've got to ask yourself, is that right or wrong? You already know the answer. Right. You know. I have a couple of stand. This is a big gearbox change, but a couple of standard questions for every uh, board builder that I interview. Um, how often are you riding other uh, shapers' surfboards at this point? I haven't done it in a long time. I used to do it all the time. Like in France, I used to ride everybody's boards. Like I would make boards for guys. They could trade me their board, um, and I would probably surf it. 
and try to learn. Yeah. And, you know, in the early early 70s, when I first went to Hawaii in 74, I got Renos and mm. I got BKs boards. Wayne loved the BKs. I loved the Renos. Uh, in France, when I was in France, I can remember some of the boards I rode. But all of a sudden, because I got faster boards, I rode someone's board the other day and it was so damn slow because mm. I love to be able, I love a fifth gear in a board, if not a sixth and a seventh. You know, like I love to be able to go off the front foot and pump and see how fast I can go. I've been at speeds that just where I've got scared and I've jumped. <laughs> really? <laughs> yep. Yeah. One day at Winky Pop, another day, uh, two days at Winky Pop, I did a turn that was so fast and so quick that I actually came around to do a backhand reentry and went. I actually had to consciously go, you fucking knees, you idiot, and had to jump just That's in case crazy. I hit it. So, so I've had, had those moments. So I've been probably more self-absorbed on my shapes and trying to get boards to go faster and faster. And all the boards that I've ever tried, they don't have that gear. Okay. They don't have that. Like I rode a, a long board the other day, an eight-footer. I've got it's this crazy asymmetric with a single concave, big cutaway. It's a quad. I've got the fin set up asymmetric. Come on in. Come on yeah. in. Somebody's phone is uh, beeping over there. Okay. Okay, that's probably not good. No, it's all good. That's all good. <laughs> so, so yeah, asymmetric. So, so I was riding this asymmetric longboard, and uh, one of the young kids. That it's a really good friend of one of my mentors. Randall was out there, and anyhow, uh, I just I just caught this wave, and I jumped up the front, and I just pumped the thing, and it went up to a speed. I did a floater. I came out and did this really nice turn out of the top. It was sort of a pivot turn, you know. I'm learning to ride the board. Paddles really well. Twenty two and a half long, uh, twenty two and a half wide, three inches thick. Just a really fun board, you know, and. Um, he just looked at me and went, give me a go on that. And all of a sudden, he lit up on it too. And he went, wow. And then I rode his, and it was the slowest board I've ridden in so long. I'd get up the front, and it just kept. So I just could sit in the pocket and just sort of go up and down, up and down. And then I'd sort of nose rode it a little bit. But it's just, yeah, part of my DNA and anybody who's seen me surf and I've always had fast boards and Reno was the same. If you look at look back to that time, Reno was a really fast down the line surfer. Reno Obelera, that is. Right. Know, yeah. Anyhow, so, so over the years, no, I haven't. I've surfed a few guns at sunset of, of Rosses, uh, just bits and pieces, but, you know, my boards go faster. <laughs> if you could get one board from any shape around the planet, what would you get? But to do what with? Your your call. You get one board tomorrow. You get to pick from anybody. Whew. Wow, that's a good one. Take your time too. I that, can cut out dead air. That yeah, no, that that's a really good question. Damn it. Um, for my age right now, I'd probably have to go. It'd probably be. If I wanted an all-round board, I'll, I'll put it in the context. I might get a Ryan Birch. Really? Yeah. It's a great call. I'd, just because I've got so many friends, shapers, that I know all their shapes, but Ryan would probably be able to build me something that would challenge me. 
Yeah. And it would challenge him too. Have you met him? Oh, yeah. I've worked with Ryan. I oh, ma- yeah. I've made some boards with him. I, I oh, ju- okay. Just, I finished a board a few years ago for him I because he couldn't get his boards to go backhand. So I worked with him and I made him a gun, you know, and I think he still rides that gun because everyone says it goes left, it goes right. I made an asymmetrical proto for him, like a 6.8 hmm. or something. And uh, But I'd be more interested in getting a board off, you know, like if it was a, a twin keel fish or something, I might get Rob Machado to do me one. You know, because it wouldn't be just about the board, it'd be about the interaction. And could you build me one the way I surf? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I'd really, really like that. And that's part of what I'm trying to do now is maybe start collaborating with some of the younger guys. You know, like I've done a little bit with Ryan, and, you know, I learn a bit. I'm sure he learned a bit. I've just been with Rob in France. Uh, this I've never met this Tyler Warren kid. Uh, I'd probably like to do a collab with him, you yeah. know, because I can ride longboards at churches or something, you know. Yeah. How actively is Rob shaping? You know, I wonder when I see Rob on Instagram, it's like you wonder how much is it just for Instagram or is he actually shaping a lot of boards? I think he's shaping a few, but I know he's designing because when I was in France, I, I saw, he, he, you know, I'm not sure whether he knows, but I saw his new model. In, um, in Japan <laughs> and I saw the boards he was riding over there and I saw how he rode them and he had a friend of his big pole like Paul was riding one of Rob's board and this guy this kid's like I think he's about 6'2 and about 210 pound and he was paddling around on one of these fish keels like gone fishing and uh, it was pretty classic because I watched how well they surfed and it was really inspiring because Rob was taking off on six foot waves he could surf two foot waves and mm-hmm. it looks to me when I, I actually actually he shaped a board in the shaping room I was in and we went in there and had, I had a little look he just had to shape this board for his his daughter's coach and it was just really interesting to watch way to watch him shape I don't know how much he's shaping but damn that design looks good really <laughs> yeah awesome and I've seen it work and I looked at it, and it's beautifully foiled, and it's 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 yeah, it lo- very cool. It, yeah, it looks like a real magic surfboard, and I've seen Ryan do the same, you know. Yeah. So that would be that would be so. There'd probably be two guys, but there's probably a lot more to come because, like I said, I'm really hand really would like to hand down all the knowledge I have. Good. You know, it's it's all about that now. You know, and probably not going to make much money out of it it doesn't matter but it's it's more gratifying to be able to give and take and i really feel like that part of my life now yeah i i've probably given a bit in my life but it really is all about giving now good it's a good posture to have um the final question for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode i rode a, a 610 proto at rincon on tuesday how was Rencon? Pretty fun. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. And just so you know, because I tore my hamstring really badly in uh, March, so badly that the actual physio told me, uh, I went, I was at, it was at Easter, and he said, he started laughing, and I went, what? And he said, you dodged a bullet. And I went, you're kidding me. He literally said that. And I went, another one, and I, he said, 
it nearly tore off the bone. It probably stopped two millimetres from tearing off the bone. I went, like Mick Fanning? And he said, yeah, ah, year out. And he said, mate, at your age, Dunzo. you'd be done two yeah. years at least. So I dodged another bullet. So I did. I had to How'd over that it? period, huh? How'd you tear oh, it? Oh, a stupid takeoff at Bell's. Hit a bit of backwash. A bit late. wasn't really I wasn't really into the surf, and I was balanced on just my the back foot came off, and I was balanced on the front when I hit the bump. Yep. And I felt it pop, and I surfed, and I just went wow. Anyhow, so what I had to do was surf. I've been surfing eight foot surfboards, just coming back. And I had my first surf in France in August after the end of March. So I've been surfing longer, longer boards. So the other day I went out at Rincon and just went, okay, I'm on a 6.10. Can I paddle it? Yes. Can I stand up? Wow. I stood up straight away. And then I had a couple of really nice waves out there and, and did one really, really nice off the bottom and did a really fast carve out of the top and virtually went, whoa, I'm back on a 6.10. Now I've, I've got a 6.4 twin fin when I get home. I gotta get ready for Morocco uh, the, 10th of, the 10th of January. So I've got a couple of weeks to get into form and start surfing small boards. So that was another one of those little magic moments. Didn't surf great, but it's just, uh, I've gotta come back. I, I've got all these really good short boards. I love riding like fishes and stuff like that. But. Yeah. It's like been a, a tough year. Is yeah. Morocco just a surf trip or is it a work trip? It's it's a surf trip with my Japanese guys. Perfect. Like, you know, it is. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a magazine article. We're going to a place that, as Jerome described, think J Bay, small, flat, short. <laughs> and I've just he sent me some vision of it, and damn, it's a four hundred meter ride hander. Yeah. And it'll hold any size. And I'm hoping it'll be small for a week. We've got to do some photos for the Japanese magazine, which I've actually... There's been a bit of fear about that. (laughs) In not being able to surf, and I'm still overweight. I hate that. Anyhow, so I'll pull it off. Awesome. Awesome. Maurice, this has been a pleasure. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Oh,
Maurice, thank you so much for your candor and for trusting me with your story. You can find Maurice on his Instagram at MC Surfboards or just visit his website, mauricecole.com. Send him a note. Also, thanks for all your support of this network of podcasts through donations, through writing reviews on iTunes, and from simply sharing the show with friends. The organic growth that you've helped facilitate is the exact reason why someone like Maurice is willing to share his story on this platform. So keep it going. There is lots more to come in 2019. Also, you've got only a couple of days left to get in on that micro custom surfboard. The PayPal link is on surfsplendorpodcast.com slash donate. And then, of course, on the website, we have images of Maurice surfing, footage of pros riding his boards, and photos of the beautiful boards themselves. Check all that stuff out. Leave a comment at the bottom of the page for Maurice. And I wish you a happy new year. I'll be back in 2019 with a Derek Hind episode that I've been dying to share. But until then, this is David Scales reminding you to get back into the ocean, share a couple of waves, and shred on. Yeah, used to be sort of blind Now I can sort of see